Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday 26th of September, Andy Wisdom taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions, where Andy took us through the book of Psalms. Andy is one of the leaders of Christchurch Manchester and is also currently working on a PhD in theology. Let's take a listen to the session. Good morning. Um, it's really, really great to be with you this morning. Um, a real pleasure to be able to share with you. Um, on the book of Psalms and the doctrine of worship, um, two things I, I love and I'm really passionate about, and it's great to be able to um, to share those things with you this morning. And, and thank you, thank you for giving your time this Saturday morning um, to learning uh, more about who God is through this uh, school of theology. Thank you for committing to this. It really is a wonderful thing to go that step deeper in our understanding of who God is. And um, before we dive into the Psalms. And just a little bit about who I am, because I realised that um, many of you are not from Christchurch, Manchester. And so uh, a special thank you to you for joining our School of Theology, uh, wherever you may be joining from. Um, but my name's Andy. Um, I'm one of the uh, site leaders at Christchurch, Manchester, which is a multi-site church. Um, and my wife, Claire, and, and myself, we, we lead the site that is based in Fallowfield, um, which is a, a strong sort of student population. Um, and we recently took over the leadership there. Um, the, the thing that I spend the rest of my time doing is uh, studying theology, uh, specifically New Testament studies um, at the University of Manchester. I'm currently working on a PhD um, in the letters of Paul, um, asking questions about um, the state of Paul's mind, his mental health, his psychology, uh, as he was writing his letters, particularly thinking about those horrible events that happened in his life that will surely have had an influence on him. Um, but that's uh, that's. An aside, that's simply um, where I'm coming from. Um, but this morning, I get the privilege of uh, speaking to you about first the Psalms, uh, which is, uh, as you may well know, the longest book in the Bible by a long chalk, 150 chapters of varying lengths, um, all individual Hebrew poems from thousands of years ago. And, and yet you could describe this as the Bible's uh, songbook or the Bible's hymn book even the Bible's prayer book. There's so much wonderful, stu wonderful stuff in this book for us uh, today. Um, as we get started, I wonder if you um, wanna uh, just take a moment to write down on a piece of paper, the handout, your phone, whatever, uh, the first words or short phrases that jump to mind when you think of this book, the Psalms. And this session is going to be for people who have, have barely read the Psalms before and for people who actually are really quite familiar with this book. I hope there's going to be something for everybody. But what words and phrases jump to mind immediately for you when you think of this quite unique book of the Bible? I'll give you just a minute to write down a couple of things. Well, I wonder if some of the uh, words and phrases that are springing from the end of your pen are things like uh, songs and prayers, hymns, poetry. Maybe uh, you kind of think of descriptive words to describe the full range of these poems. Maybe things like emotion, because the Psalms are highly emotional and honest. 
maybe uh, specific uh, authors of the Psalms sprung to mind for you. Maybe you thought of King David, uh, who wrote um, at least probably half of the Psalms that we find in this book, including some of the ones that aren't actually attributed to him specifically by name. But just to give you a little overview of what this book is, that the word psalm you'll see in your Bible is just a Hebrew word that simply means to pluck or play a stringed instrument. So it's, it's, it's the noise that would be made if you played a string of a harp or a lyre. So it just means kind of the book of music or the book of songs. There's a huge variety of styles within the Psalms of poem, but they do have a lot of common threads. And um, there's a book that uh, I found quite helpful in preparing this that you may be familiar with called Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson, um, which actually uh, talks about the, it mentions the various threads that go through the book of Psalms. Um, and it, it gives you actually an introduction to Hebrew poetry as a whole. So I'll be recommending that book later on. Um, but uh, Hebrew poetry had various kind of common threads within the poems, even though they're hugely different from one another, that tied them together. And we're going to see a few of those as we go through. These psalms are written from a huge variety of perspectives as well, from the first person singular, uh, the way David often writes, I this, I that, or the first person plural, maybe a psalmist writing on behalf of the people of Israel, we this, we that. And then some psalms are written in the third person as well, so uh, speaking more abstractly about the righteous person or the wicked person, speaking from a more detached point of view. A huge variety of styles and a huge variety of perspectives. I almost think if you were to uh, make a collation of all of the music of the 90s and you put it all on one CD, you'd have a huge expanse of different uh, songs from different artists and yet there would be common threads throughout, wouldn't there? Well, there are several authors, as I've mentioned, in the Psalms. Uh, 73 of the Psalms in their little subscript say a Psalm of David, um, and another two of the Psalms are attributed to David in the New Testament, which leads us to think that actually at least 75, if not more of these Psalms, are written by King David, uh, who was living at around the uh, 1000 BC mark. Other major contributors to the book of Psalms, although not nearly as big contributors as David, are the sons of Korah. Um, I love the story of the sons of Korah, who wrote just a handful of Psalms, um, because theirs is a story of a family's redemption, of God's grace in one family. You see, Korah was a man who led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron uh, in the book of Numbers and was killed for it. And yet a few generations later, here you find his descendants worshipping in the choir in the temple and writing psalms which would last forever. I love the redemption that we've seen in that family, a family that began with rebellion and yet came to worship God. There's a couple of psalms written by a man named Asaph and several psalms written by his sons or his descendants. And if you read 1 Chronicles chapter 25, you see this description of the worshipping music group or choir in the temple. And among that number, you find Asaph and his sons. And a couple of psalms are written by Solomon, who, of course, is most famous for being David's son and writing most of the book of Proverbs. Now, these psalms, uh, although most of them are by David and from David's time, that 1000 BC era, they actually span a much longer period of time from Moses all the way to the exile to Babylon. You get psalms reflecting a whole bunch of different circumstances in the history 
of the people of Israel. Something that's helpful for us to know today as well as uh, people reading this book sort of, uh, sort of two and a half to three and a half thousand years on from when the Psalms were being compiled is that these Psalms were not intended to be used by the elite. Actually, they, well, they were, of course, to be used by the priests in worship, but they were intended as well to be used and recited by the common worshipper, by every member of Israel. That's why so many of the Psalms are actually written to the tune of a familiar Hebrew song. Underneath these Psalms, you'll often see to the tune of, and then it'll name a Hebrew song that's been lost to us today, that have names uh, all the way from the death of the sun to the doe of the morning to lilies to a dove on distant oaks, do not destroy, and the lily of the covenant. All of these are old Hebrew songs, the tunes of which would have been familiar to the worshippers of Israel. And so these Psalms are written to those tunes to make them memorable, even to those who are unable to read. These were intended for common use and were used by all, not just by the priests. It's worth noting that the uh, book of Psalms does not contain all of the Psalms that you find in the Bible. Actually, if a Psalm is uh, a song that's written in a, a sort of a relatively unspecific structure, but a song of praise to God, then there are actually plenty more Psalms in the Bible, including in ex Exodus 15, where Moses and Miriam sing a song of victory after God has delivered them through the Red Sea. Uh, Judges 5 finds, uh, I believe it's uh, the prophet Deborah singing a psalm to God. And 1 Samuel 2, which I believe, I am guessing this, but I'm pretty sure that's, uh, that's Samuel's mother singing a song of praise to God. Actually, the book of Psalms is, uh, we're led to believe, is probably, or probably contains all Psalms written by men. And yet, if you look in the rest of the Old Testament, actually, there are Psalms written by women as well. The book of Psalms, and we're going to look slightly more at this in just a moment is divided into five books. And in your Bible, if you flick through the book of Psalms, you'll see the divides between those books. Now, again, as I'll go into a bit more in a second, the exact reason for the divides between those books remains a bit of a mystery. Although there are some emphasis, uh, kind of things that are emphasized in each book, but they are divided at Psalms 41, 72, 89, 106. And then of course the final Psalm is 150. But the thing about these books is there are a couple of things that indicate to us that um, when, the, when the book of Psalms was compiled together, um, actually there were little bits that were inserted. Just small uh, edit points to divide the books from one another. At the end of Psalms 41, 72, 89 and 106, you'll find a variation of the phrase, um, of the phrase, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, Amen and Amen. Something along those lines will happen at the end of the psalm that ends each of the book, books of the psalms. And you might describe that as a doxology, which simply means a glorifying phrase, a phrase that's designed to give glory to God. Well, these psalms as well were intended to be read aloud and read in full. The Psalms are an incredibly popular book of the Bible. If you were to Google uh, the most popular Bible verses, uh, then pretty much any survey you'd find of the most popular Bible verses, however these things are measured, would include a huge chunk of Psalm verses. But we have a tendency, don't we, to kind of cherry pick and pick a verse that uh, sounds good and not necessarily read the Psalm uh, as a whole. But these Psalms are definitely intended to be read 
as a whole. I uh, was, and, and these psalms are designed to be, to be, uh, to be read out, to be chanted, to be sung, and to be prayed. And that's particularly obvious in some of them that cry out for God's help, for them to be prayed out. Christopher Ash, who's a writer for uh, Desiring God, John Piper's ministry, describes the Psalms as being a little bit like a mini, uh, sorry, uh, describes the Lord's Prayer as being like a mini book of the Psalms. He says this because the Lord's Prayer kind of covers the, compre it comprehensively covers in brief what it means to pray to God and how to pray to him. But the Psalms actually cover this in much more detail. He says this, Christopher Ash. In many ways, the Psalms are the expanded version of the Lord's Prayer, or we might say the Lord's Prayer is the compressed version of the Psalms. Just as the Lord's Prayer expresses in brief an adoration of the majesty of God's holiness, a yearning for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, a supplication for God to provide for us all that we need, and a concern to live with pure piety in a sinful world, so we shall find that the Psalms express all of these expansively, and majestically. In other words, the Psalms are comprehensive in their coverage of the major themes of the Bible. God's promised messianic king, God's redemption, God's glory and sovereignty, mankind's sinfulness and God's forgiveness. All of this uh, is in the Bible, all of this is in the Psalms as well. The Psalms are also pretty comprehensive in their coverage of the emotions of the human being, aren't they? The Psalms is a highly emotional book, possibly more so than any other book of the Bible. It encompasses pretty much the full range of human emotional experience. If you can feel it, the Psalms probably mention it. But what's interesting is that um, actually in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Psalms is called the Tenelim, which uh, it goes a little bit deeper than the word psalm, which, as I mentioned, means kind of to pluck a, a, a stringed instrument. Tenelim means songs of praise, which is an interesting word to describe this huge range of highly emotional poems and songs, which is why I thought an alternative name for the book of Psalms might be songs of praise for every circumstance. What does it mean to praise God in the, the brightness of day and the darkness of night? What does it mean to praise God at our peak happiness and in the darkest night of the soul? Actually, the Psalms gives us an answer to those questions. As we go forward to have a look at the Psalms, we're going to begin by looking at the, the structure of the Psalms, those five books, and seeing if there are any kind of common themes um, that we can identify that give us a little bit of a hint as to why those books have been divided as they have. But then we're going to spend the majority of this first session thinking about the, the way the Psalms can be grouped together in kind of their themes or their emphasis. Looking at the groups of Psalms that we find in this book. We're not going to look at many specific Psalms in detail. There are 150. If we did, we'd have like 30 seconds per Psalm. But actually, looking at the Psalm groupings should help us to get an overview of this phenomenally helpful book of the Bible for our prayer and our worship. As we go forward, we're going to ask uh, kind of three questions um, about what it means to read the Psalms as Christians, reading them thousands of years on from when they were written and through the lens of all that God has done through Jesus. Question one will be, what do the Psalms tell us about God's character and mankind's relation to him? I actually want to rephrase that question slightly or maybe just add another question, which is, 
what do the Psalms tell us about what it means to worship God? What do the Psalms tell us about what it means to worship God? Because these are songs of praise and worship. Question two, how do we interpret the Psalms through the lens of Jesus and the cross of Christ? And number three, how do we use the Psalms? How do we use the Psalms today in our private and corporate worship? Let's keep those questions in mind as we take a look at first the structure of the book of Psalms. Well, as I've mentioned, the Psalms are split into five separate books. The divides come at Psalms 41, 72, 89, 106, and kind of go all the way up to the end, that final book, until Psalm 150. But you'll see that I've put a slight divide there after Psalm 145, and I'll explain why in just a moment. Now, it's a little bit of a mystery still to all scholars of the Psalms, really, and why the Psalms have been partitioned where they have. It's not entirely clear um, exactly where the, uh, why the Psalms have been uh, partitioned where they have. I've just had a request to repeat the questions from the beginning, so I'll do that. And um, just in case you don't have the handout, we're going to ask these questions. What do the Psalms tell us about God's character and mankind's relation to him? What do the Psalms tell us about what it means to worship God? How do we interpret the Psalms through the lens of Jesus? And how do we use the Psalms in our private and corporate worship? Okay, let's keep those things in mind. We'll come back to them as we go through. But back to the, the structure, we have these five books of the Psalms, but it's still a bit of a mystery as to why they've been partitioned as they have. So uh, some, and I'll, I'll explain why. So in book number one, for example, which covers Psalms 3 to 41, there is this emphasis perhaps on God's deliverance of Israel. Most of the Psalms in this book are written by David, uh, are written by David. And, uh, and David kind of provides this model for the deliverance that God is going to bring on a much bigger scale. David speaks personally about how God has delivered him from the various perils of his life, whether it be hiding in caves or fighting lions. David talks about God's deliverance as the, and it becomes this archetype for God's deliverance of Israel. Book one contains uh, a group of Psalms, uh, Psalms 22, 23 and 24. In the middle, of course, is the famous Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, which describes God as shepherd, saviour and sovereign. But regarding this emphasis on God's deliverance of Israel, the problem with saying that book one is clearly focusing on that is that actually so do many of the books, many of the Psalms in the other books. Actually, there's uh, a huge emphasis on God's deliverance of Israel throughout the book of Psalms. You could say the same in book two, which perhaps has a slightly greater emphasis on prayers for the coming of the messianic kingdom, for God to send the ultimate king who will redeem and lead Israel. And yet, actually, there are prayers calling for God to send his messianic king all the way through the book of Psalms. You could say the same of the, the theme of Israel being in exile, which dominates several of the books of the Psalms. Actually, trying to split the books up thematically is a little bit of a losing battle. But there's one thing that's quite interesting, um, which, uh, yeah, which, which kind of uh, shows um, perhaps a point of distinction between the books, which is the way God is addressed. Actually, God is addressed throughout the Psalms by two names. One is the slightly impersonal Elohim, which simply means God. 
Uh, and it's, a, it's a, a, a name that kind of denotes adoration and uh, holiness, but it's not a name you'd address God with on a personal level necessarily. And then there's the name Yahweh, the four letter unutterable in the Jewish tradition name of God, which God gave to Moses and said, this is how you will know me as my special chosen people. God is addressed by both of those names throughout the book of Psalms. And yet, depending on the book uh, of the Psalms, books one, two, three, four and five, there's a different emphasis on how God is addressed. And actually, it's quite striking. In book one, God is addressed as Yahweh 272 times but it's Elohim only 15 times. There's a huge difference there, isn't there? And part of the reason might be that many of the Psalms in book one are by David. David has this intimate relationship with God as his chosen king of Israel. Perhaps that's why he uses the more personal name for God. But book two flips it completely on its head. God is addressed as Yahweh only 74 times in book two and as Elohim 207 times. So there's this huge shift in emphasis. Actually, God is addressed more in this, uh, this, this name that implies reverence, but not necessarily a personal intimacy. Books two and uh, books three, books two and three both emphasize Elohim. And then book four, books four and five flip right back to Yahweh with 339 mentions of Yahweh and only seven of Elohim. So in other words, the book of Psalms is kind of sandwiched in between two deeply personal books, books what, well, books one, four, and five, actually, which address God in, his, in a deeply personal way of calling him Yahweh, with two books in the middle that are slightly more detached, addressing God with the reverence and holiness, but not necessarily of David. It's interesting. That's one of the distinctions between the various books. But as I say, we can't give a clear answer as to why the books are divided in this way. Psalms do have an introduction and a conclusion, however, and it's likely that these, uh, how many is it? These seven Psalms were probably added last as the editors put the Psalms together. Psalms one and two are anonymous, which is out of character for book one, with the vast majority of the Psalms being by David and pretty much all of them having some author. But Psalms 1 and 2 are anonymous. Psalm 1 is about delighting in God's law. And Psalm 2 is about God's chosen king. And these two Psalms, which are uh, somewhat vague in nature and don't speak of a specific circumstance that the author is going through, work well as an introduction to the collection. And then at the end, you have Psalms 146 to 150, which contain, uh, which, which begin all in the same way with the words hallelujah, which simply means praise God. And this is, is kind of described as the hallelujah chorus at the end of the Psalms. You know, at the end of a, 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 a service on a Sunday, uh, the pastor might say to the worship leader, you know, let's go out with a bang. Let's have a really upbeat uh, kind of praise song at the end that just gets us going. Well, that's kind of the way the hallelujah chorus uh, works at the end. Praise God um, and closes off the book. Well, it has been argued that the trajectory of the whole book of Psalms moves from lament in the first half to praise in the second half. But once again, actually, the Psalms quite quickly switch between those two themes. There's not one clear reason. But I do encourage you to uh, go through the book of Psalms, maybe read a psalm a day. Don't rush through them. Read them as they were intended to be read, one at a time. 
and see if you can see any clear themes uh, that link the books together, but don't exhaust yourself trying to do so. But even though the structure of the book of Psalms uh, can remain a little bit of a mystery, there are some pretty clear groupings within the entire book of Psalms which tie various Psalms to one another um, and allow us to actually put the Psalms in different groups. There are psalm types which share commonalities both in their content and tone, but also in the style in which they are written. And the first of those psalm types is the psalms of lament. We're going to uh, go through the various types of psalms that you can find in this book, uh, looking at kind of the largest groupings of psalms. Now, I'm not claiming that the way I'm grouping the psalms is the way to group the psalms. It just really helps to actually see the themes that are returned to time and again throughout the book. And we're going to pause for a little bit longer to think about and discuss two of the most complex, maybe tricky to read and interpret types of psalms, the psalms of lament and the psalms of revenge or the imprecatory psalms that we'll get to later on. We're going to look at lots of other types of psalms as well, the psalms of gratitude, contrition and repentance, the psalms of doxology and the psalms of wisdom. We'll begin with the Psalms of Lament. And the reason this is a great place to begin is because actually, uh, in terms of single groupings of types of Psalms, this is by far the biggest in the book. At least 42 of the Psalms in the 150 can be described as Psalms of Lament. This isn't just because they're a little bit sad um, and they've got a, a sad tone to them. It's because they follow a certain structure as well, which we'll get to in a second. But they contain content like, my soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? That language, how long will I be going through what I'm going through now, is really common to these psalms of lament. How long will I suffer? Psalm 10.1, why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? as we go through these types of psalms, I'm not going to read out all the quotes that I've put down here, but I've given you uh, lots of them so that when you're thinking about the psalms in the future and you think, ah, I could really uh, use some help finding a psalm of lament right now, for example, there's a resource here that you can use to do so. But the thing about these psalms is that nothing is held back. And actually, you'll find that in all of the psalms. No emotion is held back. The author speaks here in Psalm, uh, Psalm 6.3 of a deep depression, actually, which penetrates the very soul. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Many of the Psalms, like Psalm 10.1, express that God seems to be far away, unreachable, or even asleep, and they ask God to wake up. Actually, they express deep, deep pain and anguish. Psalm 22 begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the psalmist, there's this feeling of having been abandoned by God. Now, this is, of course, the psalm that Jesus quotes on the cross, one of the psalms that Jesus quotes on the cross. Or looking at it from the other direction, it's the psalm which predicts Jesus' gruesome death. We are able to say here that what we see expressed in the psalmist is a feeling. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet, of course, with Jesus... It's more than that, isn't it? Because we know that the Father did forsake Jesus on the cross so that he might redeem us. But you see this intense emotion that's provided here in the Psalms, 
which is the only language appropriate for Jesus to cry out in his darkest hour on the cross. Well, Lament Psalms is by far the largest grouping in the book of Psalms. Clearly, expressing pain and anguish in God was an important part of worship in the Jewish culture, which assembled this book. In just a moment, we're going to, after I've done one more thing, we're going to go into breakout rooms and discuss the, the place that Psalms of Lament could have in our worship today. But before we do... Actually, uh, the the reason these psalms are grouped together, as I said, it's not just because they are um, sad in their tone or they mention difficult events. Actually, they follow a pretty specific structure. All 42 of these lament psalms contain the same elements. Sometimes the order is slightly muddled or slightly mixed up, but they all contain these things, as you'll see on the handout if you have it. Actually, uh, Psalm 13, which is a lovely short psalm, really good for study in this context, and actually follows this Psalms of Lament structure pretty well. These psalms begin with a cry to God. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? A cry to God that says, God, I feel forsaken by you, or I don't understand what's going on. I, I need you right now. What follows is normally a complaint about what is actually going wrong in the life of the psalmist. What has caused them to get to this dark place where they're crying out to God for his help? The psalmist talks about wrestling with his thoughts in Psalm 13. Day after day, he says, I have sorrow in my heart. How long will my enemy triumph over me? The enemy is winning. That's caused the psalmist to get into this position of lament. And it's leading to, again, a deep sense of despair and anguish. What follows are two elements which in Psalm 13 are flipped on their head, which is the confession of trust that God will deliver and a petition calling for God's intervention. Those two things are not necessarily upside down in this psalm, they're just a little bit jumbled together in verses three to five. Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Petition calling for God's intervention. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I've overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. And then in verse five, we get the confession of trust that God will deliver. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. This uh, is the point where the Psalms call us to choose to trust God, even in those darkest of circumstances. Finally, there's a promise to praise God when deliverance comes. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. And we may think that that's a conditional offer of praise. And yet actually in this life or the next, God has promised deliverance. So all the psalmist is doing is holding God to what he has promised. Promise to praise God when God delivers on his promise to deliver in this life or the next Well, it's time to uh, break into breakout rooms for the first time. And I've got two questions I'd love to um, I'd love to get you to discuss. Um, And those are um, I'll write these in the chat as well when you go into breakout rooms, just in case you don't have the, uh, the handout. Those questions are number one, does lament still have a place in our worship? Corporately and privately, is there still a place for us to lament to God like the psalmist does in Psalm 13? And question two, is there a difference, do you think, between lamenting and complaining? Is there a difference between lamenting and complaining? 
I can see that somebody has uh, kindly posted the, uh, the questions in the chat already for me. So I'll let you get into breakout rooms for 10 minutes um, and then we'll have a little bit of, of feedback afterwards. You may want to kind of elect somebody in your breakout room to give a little bit of feedback afterwards if you feel there's anything you want to share with the whole group. Okay, hello again. Um, all right, so yeah, I'd love to hear just, just from a couple of people, um, kind of, yeah, feel free to unmute your mic and let me know and let the group know. Um, how did you feel about whether lament still has a place in our worship? If so, where, do, where does it belong? How, how, how can we still lament? Well, what I will say is, I know it's, it's trickier when we're in a huge Zoom group than it might be in a, in a, in a live group to um, feedback and kind of to the, to the entire group. So I won't, I won't get you, I won't force you to do that. Um, but the, the chat function is working, as Andy pointed out to me. Um, so if you want to give a comment on kind of where lament belongs in our worship and whether there's a difference between lament and complaining, why not pop it in the chat? Um, and uh, and if, you, if you do also have any questions as we go along, we're going to pause at the end of each session, uh, Psalms and Worship, for questions. Um, I, I won't necessarily address your questions immediately, but I will have a, have a think about them later, see if I can address them. Um, but we'll move on for now. Um, I, I realise that you are here to, to hear from, from me, so I'll, uh, I'll, um, we'll move on. And I'll, I'll give you my thoughts on those two questions about whether, whether lament uh, belongs in our, in our worship. Um, and, and the answer is, is a resounding yes. Lament is in the Bible. It's, it's not just in the Psalms of lament either. There's a book of lamentations. And there are plenty of times in the New Testament, actually, where, where um, real pain is held on the sleeve of, of an author or, or a person, a character, um, for the, uh, before God, lamenting. There are also times in our lives, aren't they, where we, uh, we face situations that are utterly unbearable. We're either going through or supporting someone through something uh, which would make it completely inappropriate to jump for joy or encourage them to feel happier. That would just not make any sense and would not be remotely kind and actually wouldn't cause us to glorify God more if we encouraged people to feel happy when everything is telling them not to. Actually, the right thing to do in those situations is to pray prayers of lament. Cry out for God's help. Tell him what's going wrong and how desperate we feel. Confess that we trust him to deliver and ask for his intervention, promising to praise him when he delivers on his promise to redeem, which he always will. And we can trust that he always will. And through Christ, he has. When I was 18 years old, I remember that being the first time I ever heard somebody pray a prayer of lament. I was in East Africa, in Burundi, where my family used to live. Um, and they had taken over the running of an English-speaking evangelical school that had been set up to educate uh, orphans from the genocide that hit Rwanda and its neighbouring country, Burundi. And, and it was only a couple of months into them running this school when the school's accountant of 20 years or something like that suddenly disappeared to America with all of the school's money, every penny. And it was a huge morale blow. I mean, my goodness, it was, it was horrendous. Suddenly there were, there were several staff employed by this school who wouldn't be able to feed their families without being paid that week. They were living week by week. And this was the first time in one of the many prayer meetings that followed where I saw somebody pray a prayer of lament. This person fell to their knees and cried out at the top of their voice to God and said, God, what's going on is just not right. This is awful. We desperately need you now. 
And there was just this sense in that moment that that was an appropriate way to pray. That actually believing that God would deliver and that he would come through, but actually just say, what's going on right now is horrendous. It makes no sense. Thankfully, the money was able to be raised. God delivered and the school was able to remain open. It was a close call for, for time. But that was the first time I saw somebody pray a prayer of lament. And there was a sense of this is the right way to pray right now. And on the difference between lamenting and complaining, and I do look forward to reading your comments actually in the chat uh, when we get a break shortly. Um, but uh, on the difference between lamenting and complaining, I think complaining is when we have point number two of the Psalms of Lament structure without the rest, isn't it? To uh, telling God that we're angry with him because something's gone wrong, but not asking him for help or not saying that we're going to trust him is, is not lament, is it? That's just complaining. To complain and tell God that we're giving up on him because something's gone wrong in our lives is sinful, isn't it? It shows our real lack of perspective on all that God is doing and on his, uh, his ultimate redemption. But to lament and to petition him for his help is how the Bible tells us to pray. Philippians 4, 6 says, do not be anxious about every, uh, anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, present your requests to God. Come to him with our requests our pain and our lament. Mark Rogoff, another author on Desiring God, wrote, lament is different than crying, or lament is different than kind of just complaining or moaning, because lament is a different form of prayer. It is more than just the expression of sorrow or the venting of emotion. Lament talks to God about pain, and it has a unique purpose, trust. It is a divinely given invitation to pour out our fears, frustrations and sorrows for the purpose of helping us to renew our confidence in God. Lament is the language for living between the poles of a hard life and trusting in God's sovereignty. It is a prayer form for people who are waiting for the day Jesus will return and make everything right. Christians don't just mourn, we wait for God to end the pain. That was really helpful in understanding what lament is. And I'll post the link to the article that comes from, which is called uh, Dare to Hope in God, How to Pray Psalms of Lament. I'll post that during the break in just a moment. But to finish kind of the summary of what a psalm of lament is, and, and after we've had a break in a moment, we will um, look at all the other types of psalms, I, I promise. Um, but just to conclude, I wanted to actually read uh, a short excerpt from a modern prayer of lament. This is from Rabbi Zacharias International Ministries, um, and it was written uh, during the, in the early days of the outbreak of the coronavirus pandemic. There was this sense that what was right was to ask God for his help through lament. And actually, I thought this prayer was a phenomenal example of how we can pray in this way, in a lamentful way, while glorifying God in prayer. Now, uh, you may want to close your eyes as I uh, pray this, this prayer, and you may want to uh, say amen at the end. But I'm just going to read out the first two paragraphs of what is actually a very long prayer um, about the coronavirus pandemic. It goes like this. Hear our cry, almighty God. Listen to our prayer. How long will we have to hide in our homes from this invisible enemy? Where will it strike next? And whom? Our screens relay a continuous escalation of suffering and death around the world. Panic and anxiety abounds. Our souls are weary from the strain of the life-altering unknowns. Heavenly Father, from the depths of our pain and confusion, we cry out to you. From fear-filled hearts and anxious minds, we plead with you. Rescue us, Father of compassion and grace, 
we lift up our eyes to you, Lord God, the one who sits enthroned in heaven. Amen. There is more to that prayer. The, uh, the author enlists kind of God's help in, in blessing and having mercy on lots of different groups of people. But it's a phenomenal way of putting those guidelines from the Psalms into action in our prayer now, isn't it? Crying out to God, telling him what's going wrong and how it's affecting us, confessing that he will deliver and enlisting him for his help, promising to praise him throughout. Great. Okay. So um, thank you so much for your feedback. I really enjoyed reading various comments people had on the questions. Um, there seemed to be a theme, particularly with the question of lament and complaining between uh, when we're focused on ourselves and when we're focused on God. Um, and I think that was a really helpful bit of insight. Um, complaining is, is very us-centered and lament calls us to be God-centered and, and to do the challenging thing of trusting him uh, even when we are in, a, in the most intense pain. Um, really helpful and I, I won't go through all the uh, comments and regarding the, the really great question that Becky asked about Psalm 88 which is a lament psalm that doesn't necessarily fit the lament structure. We'll see if we can uh, come back to that at the end um, but we want to get through some of the other types of psalms that we find here and I would love to spend a few minutes particularly talking about those complex psalms of revenge or the imprecatory psalms once we get there. Um, but first we should look at the uh, probably the joint happiest of the psalms, the psalms of gratitude, um, joint happiest perhaps with the psalms of doxology, which we'll get to in just a moment. But the psalms of gratitude are, are simply uh, are simply psalms which seem to be thanking God for something that he has done. Now that's where there's a distinction, I think, between the psalms of gratitude and the psalms of doxology or praise, which simply say, God is great, and here is a bunch of reasons why. The Psalms of gratitude seem to be responding to something God has done in the recent past or uh, perhaps in the, the broad past and, and they're thanking him for something specific. Now that thing is rarely specified because uh, I think these Psalms are designed to be used in a whole variety of circumstances. One exception might be the psalm that Moses and Miriam sing after God has delivered them through the Red Sea, where the refrain is horse and rider you have hurled into the sea. They're specifically talking about something God has done. But usually it's slightly more vague. Psalm 18:6. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. We know that God has done something for the author, David. We're not quite sure what it is. Psalm 30 verses 1 to 2 speak of, you know, we use the word healed, don't they? I, I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. These Psalms are clearly thanking God for something that's happened, but they don't tell us exactly what it was, which makes them really helpful for when we need the language to express something God has done for us that we want to thank him for. Here, this uh, thing about healing, we don't know whether the psalmist is talking about kind of a holistic healing that God has brought about in his life or a specific uh, illness or injury that God has healed him of. But this gives us the language to thank God when he has healed us. There's a, a parallel, I think, with these psalms of gratitude between uh, the, the psalms and the way Paul speaks about a particular episode of suffering in 2 Corinthians 1. 
He talks about how uh, he has essentially been brought due to a, a crisis that happened in the province of Asia Minor to his absolutely lowest point of despair and pain to the point where he thought he was going to lose his life. And then he speaks about how actually this led him to trust more in God who raises the dead. And he looks back strangely over this period of intense suffering with gratitude to God who has rescued him. Actually, uh, these psalms of gratitude here in um, this kind of the second biggest group, they probably are after, um, after the psalms of lament, uh, often follow a pattern a little bit like the psalms of lament. And you'll see that the elements are kind of uh, the same elements. They're just, they're just on, on almost on the positive side. They're crying out to God in happiness and gratitude rather than crying out to him in pain. They begin with a proclamation, I will exalt you, Lord. We know that the Psalms of Lament began with a cry, God, I need you, or, or God, help me. The, the Psalms of Gratitude begin with a proclamation. Then they go on with a, a reason, a reason for the praise. Psalm 30, I will exalt you, Lord. There's the proclamation for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lifted me out of the depths sounds metaphorical. I think we're not we're not aware of a time uh, from the rest of scripture where, where David was, I don't know, nearly drowned, uh, like, for example, Jonah. And yet he's clearly alluding to a time that God has rescued him from his enemies. And this gives us the language to apply to a whole bunch of different circumstances. Then there's a testimony. Here's what God has done for me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit and a vow of continued praise. We fast forward to the end of Psalm 30 to get that, but it says, Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. These Psalms are clearly thanking God for something he's specifically done that is still ringing in the ears of the author. And they challenge us to not forget to thank him for the things he does. We can look back in gratitude over all the things God has done. The most incredible, of course, being sending Jesus to die for us and pay for our sin. And yet, actually, there are things in our lives which we must not forget to thank him for as well. The Psalms of gratitude call us to that attitude, that attitude of gratitude, if you like. It just came into my head. Um, we're moving on. We'll, we'll have a little look at some of the other Psalms. These occur in kind of smaller groups. There, there are fewer of these. And, and as I say again, my way of splitting the Psalms up isn't the way of splitting the Psalms up. Some people group them simply into two groups, lament and praise. I think it's more helpful to look at them in slightly smaller groups because they reflect then a slightly wider array of circumstances we may find ourselves in. Here we have the Psalms of contrition or repentance. I use the word repentance hesitantly because the Psalms don't always include a vow to turn one's life around. Actually, they are usually based much more in the apology. God, I'm so sorry for what I've done. Please forgive me. These are Psalms which reflect the deep emotional pain of a writer who has been made aware of his sin. Psalm 51 is a good example. I'll just flick to it. Um, in, the, in the subscript on Psalm 51, it says, this is the Psalm David wrote after Nathan the prophet had challenged him on his committing adultery with Bathsheba. Uh, this, of course, the darkest moment in David's life, as far as we're aware in terms of his own wrongdoing, where he, um, he sleeps with Bathsheba, she becomes pregnant, and he has her husband, uh, killed um, as a result. And David says this at the beginning of Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, 
according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The psalmist here calls on the character of God. And it's interesting, isn't it, that he calls on a different aspect of the character of God than perhaps the lament psalms do or the gratitude psalms do. The lament psalms call on God's immense power and his compassion to, to save. And yet the, the contrition, the repentance psalms call on God's mercy his forgiveness. Of course, there's common ground there, but regarding that question that we thought about at the beginning, what do the Psalms tell us about God's character and man's relation to him, about what it means to worship God? Well, the Psalms draw upon all of God's incredible qualities. For uh, many of the Psalms, actually, we'll get to the Psalms of doxology in just a second. The things about these psalms of contrition, they show us that it is right to come before God with a contrite heart, to not try and hide away our sin, but to bring it before him and say, this is what I've done. Please, in your mercy, forgive me. And we know that we can approach God. And through the death of Jesus, our sins have been paid for already and we can ask for his forgiveness. Praise God for that. There are some psalms in the fourth category here, where there seems to be no more hidden or complicated purpose than just to make much of who God is. I've called these the Psalms of doxology, or you could call them the Psalms of magnification or uh, Psalms of praise even, quite simply, just to say how incredible God is. Some of these come across as really spontaneous. There's one particular Psalm, I can't remember which one, where it's clear that David is just sitting in a field marveling at God's creation in the middle of the night, marveling at all God has done in creation. And there's no more uh, hidden um, kind of motive behind the psalm. It's just, this is how great God is. This is the same in many of our modern worship songs. There is no purpose other than to make much of God in these psalms. There's no clear uh, specific reason for praise except for who God is, which is the greatest reason there is to praise. Sometimes these words, uh, these psalms use words like magnify the Lord. You can understand uh, us as God's worshippers, and we'll get to this a bit more in session two, as being, like, uh, as being like telescopes for God. John Piper makes a distinction between being telescopes and being microscopes. A microscope makes something tiny look big, but that's not what we're doing with God because he's not tiny. He's mighty, the creator of the universe. But telescopes make something big look as big as it is. That's what we do when we magnify God, show him off to be as big and as great as he really is. Romans uh, 1.20 speaks about how we have no excuse not to glorify God as human beings. Paul says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse and yet Paul goes on to talk about how we, uh, even though God's glory is on display and the natural heart cry uh, of those who love him should be to magnify and glorify him. Actually, it isn't always that way, is it? Because sin still has influence on us. Our hearts are often ungrateful and forgetful, which is why we're blessed to have these words of scripture in the Psalms of doxology to call us to pray, uh, to call us to worship God for all he is and to make much of him. And we can pray as Paul does in Ephesians 1, that God would reopen the eyes of our hearts to remind us of how great he is. 
And even when we're still prone to forget all of the benefits of who God is, we can pray like David does in Psalm maybe 103, uh, where he says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not, uh, forget not his benefits. That's a strange psalm where David almost preaches to himself. He says, don't forget how great God is. These psalms of doxology help us to do that. Psalm 2410 says, who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. Amen. Well, moving on uh, to the Psalms of Wisdom, just a brief mention of these, because these, uh, the kind of wisdom literature of the Bible, I believe, is covered much more in a, in a session on the wisdom literature uh, in School of Theology. So we won't go loads into this, but these are Psalms that are kind of reminiscent of the Proverbs. They give wisdom for what it means to be a worshipper of God. In fact, Psalm 1 is a Psalm of Wisdom that says, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. These Psalms of wisdom come across a little bit like the Proverbs to give us guidance on what it means to worship God, practical and spiritual guidance on what it means to honour God and of course to dishonour him as well. Often here you find the language of the righteous and the wicked, but that appears throughout the other Psalms as well. Which brings us to the, the final category of Psalms. I'd love us to spend a little bit of time thinking about, and that is the Psalms of revenge or the imprecatory Psalms, which is a word that means uh, to bring down a curse. These Psalms are often written from a place of pain, like lament Psalms, but what sets them apart is that they ask God to act on the author's behalf to punish those who have wronged the author very often, to punish those who are enemies of the author or enemies of God, or as we'll see, both. They say things like, arise, Lord, deliver me, strike all my enemies on the jaw, break the teeth of the wicked. May those who seek my life be disgraced and put to shame and in one of the most graphic Psalms in 137, daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you've done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. This kind of language is graphic and it's honestly quite difficult to read, isn't it? Why is there no element of forgiveness, which uh, we know from the New Testament is a huge emphasis of Jesus' ministry, forgiveness. Why is that not there? Why is there not at least a recognition that desiring this kind of revenge is, is wrong? How do we read, pray and use these psalms in our lives, knowing that Jesus told us to forgive our neighbour 77 times and hanging on the cross, he said of those crucifying him, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. How on earth do we look at these psalms through that lens? Well, before I make a couple of comments on those questions. I think it'd be great to discuss these in groups once again. Have a think about these two questions. Number one, is there a place for imprecatory psalms in our worship or these psalms of revenge? And number two, which, which very much relates to number one, as Christians, what should we do with these Bible passages which request the outpouring of judgment on our enemies? Is there a place for these revenge psalms in our worship? And as Christians, what should we do with Bible passage, passages which request the outpouring of judgment on enemies? We'll give you eight minutes for that one.
So regarding these imprecatory psalms, I'll just give you a couple of my thoughts, but please do post your own in the chat <clears throat> as I do so. And um, we've got this problem, haven't we, with these psalms not really, uh, <clears throat> not really matching up in an obvious way with the, the message of forgiveness that we find all over the New Testament. And actually in the Old Testament as well, people are always imploring God for his forgiveness. Um, but there's not necessarily the attitude of forgiving enemies that you find in the New Testament. In Romans 12, for example, Paul says, bless those who persecute you and do not curse. Do not repay anyone for evil, but leave, uh, do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And I think that's really key. Paul says, do not avenge yourself, but leave it to God's wrath. For it is mine to avenge, says the Lord. Paul tells us not to take revenge into our own hands, but to trust God to avenge who? To avenge us or actually to avenge himself. And by default, as his people, we will be vindicated as well, because God's glory is what really matters. The psalmists actually, on the whole, tend not to talk about taking revenge into their own hands. Actually, they tend to implore God for help and kind of leave it to him to decide whether or how to do so. But if we are to pray these psalms, which ask God to bring judgment upon his enemies and by extension, you know, our enemies and as his people, which situations might those actually be for? If it's a yes that these psalms belong in our worship, who are they for? Is it for people who cut us off in traffic or the neighbour with the obscenely loud dog in the night or the people who let off fireworks in the middle of the night, which happens all the time where I live in Burnage? No. It's definitely not for our personal enemies, for those who upset us. For David, it, it obviously did concern his personal enemies, people who were hunting him down, trying to kill him, attacking his nation. But these were also the enemies of God. Praying these Psalms is about asking God to glorify his good name and in doing so vindicate his people. Um, I've lost my place there we go so psalms of imprecation can be prayed concerning individuals organizations who want to drag the name of god through the mud who are aggressively anti-christian and who want to destroy the church it is right to ask god to glorify himself by acting against such organizations and individuals but we must never allow these psalms to obscure our vision concerning god's sovereignty and grace God will ultimately judge the living and the dead, but only we know how he will do so. And so on a personal level, what he calls us to through the words of Jesus, the words of Paul, all of the words of the Bible is to love our enemy, to forgive them, to even pray for them in the hope that God may save them. Without a doubt, as we should as well, when it comes to thinking about the enemies of God, well, we should keep in mind what Paul talks about in Ephesians 6 using the powerful weapon that is prayer to fight the spiritual battle against the principalities and powers of this dark world. And the imprecatory Psalms are an incredibly powerful tool for doing that. Well, regarding that uh, slightly rephrased question I added in at the beginning, what do the Psalms tell us about what it means to worship God? Well, if we look at them as a whole, we see there's one key theme throughout all the Psalms, which is trust trusting God. We worship God by telling him we trust him in worship. But actually they call us to a radical honesty as well, don't we? Don't they? 
they call us to not to hide how we're feeling from God because actually he sees the depths of our hearts. That's in the Psalms, isn't it? In Psalm 139 and several others that God sees the depths of our hearts. And so to hide how we're feeling from him is much more sinful than being honest about how we're feeling. These Psalms call us to magnify him, proclaim how great he is, and they call us to enlist his help in times of trouble. And they call us to trust him and praise him in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. And beautifully, these Psalms give us the language to do so when we're struggling. Well, just to finish on that final page of the handout, and if you have any questions that you are really burning that you'd like me to address at the end of this session, I'll do my best, although I won't have time to do more than a couple of questions. Um, but pop them in the chat. Um, and I just want to just make one final comment on what it means to sing and pray the Psalms. Because actually we are Christians living in the wake of the cross, all that Jesus has done for us, knowing that God has redeemed us once and for all through Jesus. And the cross of Christ transforms everything about the way we read these Psalms. You could even say the cross fulfills the way the Psalms are intended to be read. Because all over the Psalms we see Jesus. Jesus is the righteous man who the psalmist mentions on several occasions. The ultimate righteous man who had no sin. Jesus is the one in Psalm 22 who suffers and is forsaken by God. He is the good shepherd in Psalm 23 and he is the promised Messiah King. In fact, this would be a good opportunity to mention that question about Psalm 88 that Becky asked earlier. What do I make, uh, Becky asked, of Psalm 88, which doesn't follow the conventional lament psalm pattern? Well, actually, um, Becky's right, it, it doesn't. Um, psalm 88 doesn't have the uh, confession of, of hope and trust in God that he will deliver, apart from one small uh, mention at the beginning of God being the one who saves. Actually, beyond that, it's a psalm that begins and ends with darkness. The last phrase in Psalm 88 is, darkness is my closest friend. And what I would say about Psalm 88 is it gives us insight into just how dark it can get. And it calls us that even in those darkest moments, telling it to God how it is, is the right thing to do, rather than hiding what we're feeling from him. And actually, regarding Jesus, we see the uh, greatest sort of suffering and abandonment somebody could go through as he hangs on the cross, forsaken and punished by his father for the sake of a sinful humanity. That's how dark it can get. And Psalm 88 gives us some insight into that. It gives us insight into the darkness Jesus himself endured for us. But in the Psalms as well, we see ourselves as we look at the emotional side of the Psalms and realize there's not really a, an emotion we could feel that isn't somewhere in here. John Calvin put it this way. He said the Psalms are an anatomy of all the parts of the soul because there's not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious, which is not in here represented in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to life all the griefs, sorrow, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, and in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. Actually, we see ourselves in the high emotionality of these Psalms, and we see how it's okay to bring that in honesty to God and enlist him for his help. Well, I won't say much more about the Psalms because I'd love for us to get to the, uh, the subject of the doctrine of worship in just a moment. 
But I have given you a couple of kind of sources plus the articles that I uh, posted in the chat earlier on, which are really helpful in understanding this. Um, in our next break, I'll post one more article, um, which gives us kind of four questions to ask when reading every psalm that are really practical and helpful for interpreting them. Those questions are things like, what would it have meant for David or the psalmist writing this psalm originally and go all the way through to what does it mean for us as believers in Christ to pray these psalms today?